Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 18. I'm Owen Bader. What would it be like to live on $2 a day? How do people manage their finances? That's the focus of today's Development Drums. My guests today are co-authors of an important new book, Portfolios of the Poor, which helps us to understand how the poor manage their finances. Daryl Collins is a former professor at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and she's now Senior Associate at Bankable Frontier Associates in Boston. Daryl, welcome to Development Drums. Thanks very much, Owen. Great to be here. And Jonathan Mordock is Professor of Public Policy and Economics at New York University, and is a co-author of The Economics of Microfinance. He's also the Managing Director of the Financial Access Initiative, which is a consortium of development economists that aims to expand access to financial services for low-income individuals in developing countries through research. Jonathan has also been Chair of the United Nations Committee on Poverty Statistics. Jonathan, thanks for coming on Development Drums. Thanks, it's great to be here today. In Portfolios of the Poor, um, together with your co-authors, Stuart Rutherford and Orlando Rutherford, you look at how, what is it, two and a half billion people, so about 40% of the human race, manage to live on $2 a day. And as we're going to see, some of the answers are quite surprising. You spent, what, several years collecting and studying financial diaries from households in Bangladesh, India and South Africa which looked primarily not at how families lived, but how they used their money, um, how they earned money, how they spent money, how, what they borrowed, what they saved, what they invested. So before we get into the details of what you found, tell us about your approach. Why did you decide to, to gather this kind of evidence? How did you choose the families? Well, I mean, first of all, the approach was really the brainchild of David Hume at the University of Manchester. Him, he and uh, Stuart Rutherford decided that what was really needed in order to really understand how the poor managed their money was not a, a one-off survey, um, and, and neither was it necessarily an ethnography you know, a situation where you would go and you'd study just a handful of families in in excruciating detail and essentially live with them for a long period of time. And they rather came up with this concept of the financial diaries, which are fortnightly visits to a relatively small number of households. Now, in Bangladesh, that was 42 households. In India, it was 48. And in South Africa, it was about 152 Uh, And what we did was we saw these households every other week for about one year. And the word diaries is a bit of a misnomer. The households did not actually keep their own diaries. We had field staff that went and visited them and took down all of their financial flows, what came into the household in terms of income or remittances or sales of assets, what went out in terms of expenditure and input into different financial instruments, the loans, um, so in effect, you wrote a diary for them. Essentially, yes, that's right. So they, yes, they must have got to know the families quite well. Very well, and that's that's actually really the point. Is that what we found? Is that barriers would break down um, as we got to know the households better, and you really can't underestimate. I mean, these were uh, you know in in total a series of you know 
anywhere between 25 and 30 meetings that we had with these households. And we really got to know them very, very well. And we found that after a period of time, surprising information came out. Um, you know, we sometimes there were situations where we'd be interviewing uh, a man, uh, a husband and wife, and each other would tell us things that that the other one didn't know. Uh, so we might we might um, we might actually be in on somebody's secrets that they weren't sharing with their spouse, or you know, secrets between different generations about how they handled their money. Um, with, it, so, with with about three hundred households in total, or a bit less than that, you're not saying that this is necessarily a representative sample, and it wasn't chosen at random or anything like that. So these are not these are not randomized samples. So this is a snapshot of these particular families. But are you do you think that you can draw broader conclusions from from this sample? Well, yes, in many ways we can. I mean, let me tell you a little bit about the sampling. Um, what we're, we're not at all um, saying that this is representative. I mean, with such low numbers, you wouldn't want to want to say that in any way at all. But And also, this sample was drawn in a very stratified way. So what we did is we chose certain poor areas. Um, usually, it would be in each area, there was a, an urban area and a rural area. And... We within those areas, we would do participatory wealth rankings, and that would help us figure out who was the wealthier in the in 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 each neighborhood and who was the poorer. So, a participatory wealth ranking is when you get people from the actual neighborhood, and they rank each other in terms of wealth. Right. And then we we draw on the the consistent ones. So we were hoping to get not only a rural urban flavor in our sample but we also wanted to get the very poorest the sort of medium poor and then we did want to also track some of the wealthier households in the poor areas because they are often a linchpin to the whole financial system and so one of the reasons why we wanted to bring all of these studies together in one book is because it does show that even across such diverse environments, you know, from the townships of South Africa to the villages of, of India, there are a lot of um, consistencies right, in right. terms of how people manage their money. And this is rather important, isn't it? And what Portfolios of the Poor does is gives us an insight into a group of people which uh, we haven't known much about, but who constitute, uh, as I said earlier, about forty percent of the human race. So this is this is a very large number of people for us not to know very much about how the, how in detail they manage their money. I, I think that's really the big point: is that we've got all these um, big surveys that are done by the World Bank, United Nations, and government statistical agencies that cover thousands and thousands of households, which is still a very small chunk of the billions, um, but they don't give much information in detail. And so the, what the financial diaries do is to step back and say, let's get to know some particular households that are representative in important ways and really understand what their negotiations are, what their strategies, what their trade-offs are, what their struggles are, um, to be a bit, a bit more systematic than an ethnography. And you know, it, the sample is much too small if we were really testing theories, but it seemed rich enough and big enough uh, to do something which is, I think at this stage, more important, which is really generating theories or going back to our assumptions and really trying to reimagine 
and sort of get a hold on the real problems of poor households as they live them you know, day to day and week to week. We'll come on in just a second to um, what we did learn. But, but as we do that, could you paint for listeners a picture of some of the kinds of lives that we're talking about? What kind of people are they? What kinds of incomes are they earning? How are they spending money? Just so we have, we have a shared picture in our head of what kinds of households and what kinds of families you were talking to. Well, let me tell you a little bit about, um, for example, one of our, our households in the urban areas of South Africa, a woman named Pumza, who was a sheep intestine seller. Um, she lived in, in one of the hostels, a very, very crowded area, and she supported four children. She received one uh, a government grant to support one of the, the children. That was about um, $15 or so every month. And then she otherwise supported the family on this sheep intestine business. So this was a very daily and very um, a lot of fluctuations in the income. Sometimes she wouldn't know if she would be making sales or not, and sometimes she had to patch her that that cash flow by borrowing so that she could buy new stock and then therefore sell the next day. So that would be a good flavor of someone in the sample who. Um, who really had a very irregular income, which was a key focus of, of, of what we found. We found that households not only had quite low incomes, but they also have very, very irregular incomes. Right. It's um, very easy to get sucked into the idea that there are people on a dollar a day, so they're getting a dollar each day. But of course, right. lots of households are getting more money after the harvest or during when there's labor income during the harvest season or... They've got, they're working as irregular laborers and so they get work when there's work and no income when there's no, when there's no work. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And I mean, a lot of these, uh, a lot of households are doing many different types of, of, of livelihood income generating things. Uh, you know, they're selling on the side at the same time that they might have a casual job at the same time that they're selling, that they're growing things to sell. Um, you know, they're, they're, or, they might also be getting remittances from relatives on a regular basis or an irregular basis. The point is that you really don't know exactly how much money you're going to have over the next period of time. So that makes it even more important to manage the, what money you do have very, very well uh, and tr to try to smooth those, those lumps that that income comes in. Right. So you've got the problem both of uncertainty about future income and of irregularity. I mean, of it coming at, at, at in, exactly. in waves. Exactly. And then equally, you have a lot of uncertainty on the expenditure side. You really don't know when your child's going to get sick and you're going to have to see a doctor and what that doctor's going to say and how much, how expensive that's going to be and how many repeat visits. You don't know if suddenly there's going to be a funeral that you're going to have to pay for. Uh, you don't know if there's going to suddenly be a fire in your slum. And you're going to have to suddenly leave with all the belongings that you can carry, but then try to find some way to rebuild your, your shack and try to find some income to find the materials to do that. So not only is there uncertainty on the income side, there's also uncertainty on the expenditure side. One of the, just one of the, you made a really important distinction for economists, the, the distinction between irregularity, right? Something that's predictable, but... Um, but has ups and downs versus uncertainty where you really don't know what's going to happen. 
And one of the things that we see is that when you lack financial tools, that the distinction really is, is very blurred, even if something's predictable. If you don't have the tools um, to deal with it, then it, it pretty much uh, it often feels like it's... Um, Right. It's like it's something very uncertain. Knowing that you're going to get money in the future is less important if you can't borrow against it. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And this comes to the the question of, I mean, I I guess I found the book challenging at first because I started with the assumption that for financial services to be important and relevant, you need to have money and that the very poorest people would... Uh, would not be people who would make a lot of use of financial services. And, of course, the book demonstrates and your research demonstrates that that's, that's just fundamentally wrong, that um, uh, the, the very poor do not live hand-to-mouth in the way that you might think, that you might think that people who are very poor and, and living on, on a subsistence, on the subsistence line, are just consuming every penny they get as they get it. In fact, what what you are showing is that they don't do that at all, and they're making enormous use of different kinds of financial services, both formal and informal, to uh, to smooth both their income and expenditure. Yes, I think that if you ask any of the respondents, a lot of times they would say, "Well, you know, I don't have any money, so therefore I I don't I I I closed my bank account, or I wouldn't have a bank account." Yet, at the same time, they would have a savings club, or they'd be trying to save money under the bed, or they use a money guard. And I think that part of this comes from sort of a perception of what living hand-to-mouth is, and a perception of what financial services are. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, finance is a relationship between time and and money. Right. And if you're somehow trying to hold back money or, um, you know, push it forward across time, then that is some sort of financial interaction. So part of what we did was we tried to become very, very broad in terms of what we considered financial instruments, um, not just including the formal things like bank accounts and formal loans and insurance policies, but also informal devices like savings clubs and barrel societies and saving money under the mattress, but also stretching even a little bit further and saying, okay, well, some people, you know, purposefully go into arrears on their rent, for example, or they might get a wage advance, or um, they may run a small business and have one employee and purposely sort of avoid paying that employee their their salary because they don't quite have the cash flow that day. We still considered some of those things financial devices because it was a choice of moving money across time. Let's um, pause on the reasons why the poor need access to those kinds of services, which, as you say, are not just the, you know, going to a bank or going to the Grameen um, Bank for microfinance. Um, And you talk about uh, uh, three in particular, the cash flow management issue that we've talked about, the need to smooth cash flow, um, coping with risk as the second, and the need from time to time to raise big lump sums if you're paying in India for a wedding or in South Africa for a funeral, for example. Um, do you want to say some more about the, the kinds of the kinds of reasons why the poorest uh, people need access to these kinds of services? I mean, the poor households we came to know um, have much, much more risk, live in much more risky environments. And we saw in 
India, for example, in Orlando Ruffin's work, that about half of the households had major um, illnesses or health problems over the year, and about the same in, in Bangladesh. And dealing with that, you know, these are problems that come up immediately, is, is very much a financial problem, not just a health problem. So Orlando Ruffin um, you know, talks about someone she got to know named Faisal, who had a, um, a business as a, a seller of um, aluminum pots. He was a pot salesman. He broke his leg, and he put off treatment for about six months, or, I mean, serious treatment for about six months because he didn't have the finances together. And um, he lost a lot of money in the process, and um, it took him a long time longer to get better. And so we really see that sort of the risk side, especially the health issues, some of the property and um, uh, you know, fire damage issues as well. Living in a slum is a very uncertain um, environment. Um, became central for so many of these households. Right. So they, so the poor need some way of um, of coping with uh, with both positive and well, particularly negative shocks like like having a health problem or being robbed or losing assets in some way. Right. Exactly. Yeah, especially exactly. The, the unexpected ones that come up suddenly um, that you can't really plan for. Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time um, working on microfinance, which is the idea of making small loans to poor households to help them build businesses. But we saw that, you know, like in much of the world, it's very hard to run a business if there's, you know, health problems going on and, you know, other fundamental uncertainties. And we saw that in many ways, creating that foundation of greater reliability, greater certainty is, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a... Um, you know, a precursor or something necessary, but uh, it's very hard to raise income, earn income um, without dealing with more fundamental issues first. Right. But I, I think, again, what's striking about this uh, section of the book and, and this part of your conclusions is that if you have lower incomes, you actually need more financial management, more financial services than if you have higher incomes. The, the fact that you uh, you have a, a big health cost. If, you're re- if you have high income and you're relatively wealthy, you can deal with it out of pocket. If you're poor, you need some way of, of raising that money uh, immediately. Right. And the other thing is that the, you know, the downside, when you're living on such a thin margin, the downside risks are huge mm-hmm. relative right. to you know, the downside risk for most of us. Right. And that really pushes uh, people to focus on their finances, to be much, much more active about it. And come about it with you know much greater urgency so when you know the households talk about you know all of their financial dealings they're very active and quite complicated and many of the households are at least in bangladesh and india you know functionally illiterate and so they keep track of all of this in their heads and you say well how do you keep track of you know the 15 things you're doing at any one moment and they say well you know this is really important this this is what keeps us up at night Let's let's come to this complexity because this again is uh, something that I uh, found surprising. I I think in the South Africa um, uh, studies, you found that an, on average households use seventeen different financial instruments over the course of a single year, and that an average household in I mean these are the the poorest households you're studying would have mm-hmm. at any given time a portfolio of four savings instruments two insurance instruments and 11 credit instruments and mm-hmm. as as you said just now Jonathan you know all, all being kept track of uh, possibly in people's heads 
about what's going on. What uh, What's your explanation for why people are using so many different instruments all at one time? Well, I think if you look at sort of what that portfolio represents, um, one of the ways that I, I used to be a portfolio manager, you mentioned my background at Lehman Brothers and I went to South Africa to be a portfolio manager and, you know, in, in, in the portfolios of the poor work in a very similar way to, you know, the portfolios of the rich. You tend to have a purpose behind each of the um, the instruments that you have in, in the portfolio. And you might assume that, like, well, my goodness, if there are so many credit instruments, then maybe what is going on is that they couldn't get enough credit in one place. But we found that that type of inf- of, of, of explanation is not necessarily correct. You have different credit happening for different purposes. So what you might have is, is, is a couple of one-on-one borrowings and one-on-one loans. And those are very, very short-term, um, small transactions with right. your neighbor or your relative or what have you. And those are just patch cash flow, really. And then you might um, borrow from the local store. Um, or, or take credit from the local store. So in other words, take on credit through the month and then whenever your income comes in and whenever you can, you, you pay off that credit bill. And in addition, you might have a slightly larger loan to do something bigger that you're trying to accomplish. That might be a business loan. It might be um, a loan for a number of households in South Africa have um, a loan for, uh, for when they get married and, and the expense of, of, uh, of the dowry. And at the same time, you also can have a number of different insurance policies. So the big insurance policy that people hold in South Africa is funeral insurance. Barrels are very expensive in South Africa. Um, Oftentimes they cost up to about seven months of income. And it's very difficult to pay for those all at once. Almost impossible to save up for them. And of course, you never know when they're going to hit. So you tend to like to try to insure against them. Now, you can either have informal burial societies. You can also have formal funeral policies that are offered by the major banks and, um, and insurance companies. But most households have a mix of both. And each one has a particular purpose. So, for example, this somebody might have a burial society that pays for the cow that needs to be bought for the funeral. And they may have a funeral insurance with one of the banks, and that's going to be what pays for the casket. And another burial society may pay for the remainder of the food. So there tends to be this very close relationship between the purpose and the use of that instrument and in the instrument itself. And was this finding broadly replicated in Bangladesh and India as well, that, that households had a, a complex portfolio of different instruments at any one time uh, with these instruments matched to the particular purposes for which uh, that they were intended for? Yeah, I th- what um, Orlando Ruthven and Stuart Rutherford found was something quite similar. Um, products tended to match purposes and there were a broad array of products, partly because of you know, a lack of reliability of any particular product, also a lack of liquidity in in products. And so, you know, Orlando Ruthven, for example, found that on average, households that she got to know were opening, starting a new product every two weeks. So very active engagement, starting a new relationship, then shutting something down. Um, so every two weeks, some new um, engagement on average. Stuart Rutherford was finding that about a 
third of the households he got to know were using over 10 instruments at any um, across the year. Right. Uh, and so, you know, this is a sample that's considerably poorer than um, the sample that uh, Daryl got to know. And they're still you know, very financially engaged. We should just remind people, Stuart Rutherford was looking at Bangladesh, uh, Orlando Ruthman at India, and Daryl was looking in South Africa. And the portfolios really do have a lot of similarities in terms of their texture. The, the, the purpose, I mean, for example, in India and Bangladesh, rather than funeral plans and the insurance side, you would find savings instruments that it would help people save for weddings um, because weddings were sort of the big life cycle important event um, right. that, that, that people saved for in that culture. So, you know, you would see slightly different um, instruments, but the overall context, in other words, the, the fact that people were managing these big complex portfolios and they, they covered savings and credit and some sort of insurance and short-term loans and long-term loans and savings for different purposes, they were very compartmentalized. And I think that ties back to our point about, you know, when you're poor, it's so much harder to manage your your money because you are operating on a thin margin. And the way that you help yourself to set money aside is to remember why you're doing it. And I think that that's one of the reasons why it, you have the instrument tie so closely into the purpose. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, of course, this understanding is now a big part of, you know, the new field of behavioral economics, which has mm -hmm. sweeping European and American um, academic economics. So in the jargon of behavioral economics, this is called mental accounting. But it's just a very simple sort of day-to-day -day measure that um, the households we got to know were incorporating into their lives. Do you want to say something about the use of money guards? Because I suspect there'll be people listening, you mentioned them earlier, who don't know exactly what they are. And they're an example, aren't they, of, of this kind of behavioral economics view of the way that people uh, set aside money. Money guards are, are really very simple um, and very common devices. And basically, money guards are all about asking a friend, a trusted friend, to hold some money for you. And the key feature in terms of managing your money, after all, this is something you could you know, do on your own, just put money under the mattress. The key feature is it provides a commitment. It takes the money out of the household where it's tempting to spend and puts it in somebody else's hands. And so we found situations where you know, somebody would ask their neighbor to hold you know, a few dollars for them. The neighbor, in turn, would ask the household to save a few dollars for them. And so they'd each be holding each other's money, and yet you know, they, they understood what this was all about. And you know, it did provide a useful commitment um, to not spend that money, to somehow put it aside um, and keep it out of temptation's way. But in those examples, those kind of informal examples, there's no cost. Um, and of course, we're used in rich countries to, for example, having a, a direct debit or a stop order that puts money into a savings account. But we get paid to save money through the interest rate. Um, but but in, there are quite a lot of examples, aren't there, in developing countries where there's actually a cost to people to using money guards. They pay... Uh, they pay in each day of the month, for example, but they get they only get um, twenty nine out of thirty days back again at the end of the month. So yeah. people are actually there's a, neg a big negative interest rate. People are actually paying somebody uh, to to fulfil that function for them, which mm -hmm. I uh, uh, might might be a bit counterintuitive. You're you're actually paying somebody to 
deal with the fact that you don't trust yourself or you don't trust your husband or your family. Yes, that's an example that Stuart refers to frequently of the deposit collector um, in Bangladesh who, who, who goes around and collects money for a fee. And I think that the point here is that it's so difficult oftentimes to get money out of the house and, and to not spend it um, that you're willing to, to pay someone to do that. And it does turn all of our ideas about how people manage money and that, uh, that the interest rate is really central it really turns that around, and in and, and the portfolios of the poor, the interest rate is not, it's not off the page by any means, but it might not be as central as uh, economic theory puts it. Yeah, the deposit collector does something really very helpful for households. A deposit collector will come around to the household and take a fixed amount of money, maybe every day or every week, and at the end of a given period, will repay the money, less a fee, um, and then the household has a big sum. And really that feature of taking small amounts of money and converting them into something usefully large is a big feature of most or many of the um, informal financial services that poor households are creating you know, with their neighbors, whether it's a savings club or something else. It's all about taking small amounts, creating some structure to make it you know, regular and um, create, create discipline. And in the end, having a big chunk that you can do something with. For us, you know, we take it for granted that you can convert little bits of money into something big. For poor households, it's extremely hard and worth paying for um, if you can do it right. And it's well worth noting that even in uh, industrialized countries, there are scheme, I mean, Christmas clubs here in the UK or saving stamps. There are lots of examples of uh, people doing that still in much wealthier societies this is this isn't uh, it may not be what university professors and development economists do but there are lots of people uh, in industrialized countries engaged in quite similar uh, transactions aren't there yeah exactly and i mean daryl um got to know a woman named nomsa who um with her friends essentially created a christmas club um daryl can say a little bit more about the structure of that, but it'll seem very familiar to people who are used to those industrial country um, solutions. Yeah, it was amazing how effective these clubs can be in terms of being able to sort of suck out the sort of um, excess monthly income that people have in, um, in, their, in their monthly monthly cash flows. You would think that there wouldn't be any excess at all, but because you have this payment that you your friends are depending on, um, you can put aside quite sizable amounts of money. So Numsa and her friends would would put aside um, relatively small amounts of money, um, you know, say about $9 or so a month. And then this would all add up. Actually, it was under somebody's mattress. This was in the rural areas of South Africa. Um, all the money added up under the mattress, and then they would split it in December, just in time for, for Christmas, which was a rather big holiday in South Africa. And it's amazing because Numsa, if you if you look at who she is, she's not one of the wealthier people in this in this rural sample. She was actually quite poor. She supported herself on a government um, old age grant of about a hundred and fifteen dollars a month, and she supported herself and four children. And when we actually looked at how much she could set aside using these savings clubs, she used two of them, um, and in total, she set aside about about twenty five percent of her income which was not terribly unusual within the South African sample that we followed. 
So it's amazing how these savings clubs and the structure that they provide and the commitment device that they provide um, can really help people save quite a bit out of their incomes. Did you find big differences in behavior and use of these kinds of systems between urban areas and rural areas in the three countries you looked at? I think that, you know, what we found in South Africa is that um, there were more, there was more use of barrel societies in rural areas than in urban areas. But I, a lot of that goes back to um, the fact that a lot of people in the urban areas will go back and be buried in the, in the rural areas. So a lot of the expenses are sort of held there. Um, so I think that people try to protect themselves a little bit more. Um, otherwise, you may find that people in the urban areas actually send money home. And in some ways, that can be a means of saving. Either the money gets sent back home and invested into a, a, a physical structure like a house. Right. A lot of the respondents were building homes in the rural areas. And that was in some ways um, their way of investing into the future, that they'd actually put their savings into brick and brick and mortar. Mm. Uh, so there was that type of cash flow. Sometimes that, that money got sent back to the rural areas as expenditure to support family members who lived in the rural areas. Um, I was very surprised in South Africa um, that people living in rural areas were just as busy in their financial lives as those in the urban areas. You would think it would be the opposite, but... Uh, there's just as many transactions and savings clubs and all sorts of devices happening um, between people living in a village as there is uh, with people living in a township. Okay, so that's important that, that you're finding that in rural areas too that people are... And, and, uh, to what extent are these um, formal financial institutions and to what it, I think I remember from from the book that it, about 70% on average of these kinds of financial activities were in were informal broadly defined and about 30% formal is that was that true across the samples between the countries and across urban and rural areas that would be a bit more the case in I mean the South African sample had a bit more formal um, engagement than Bangladesh and India. And really what it seems to be tied to more than anything is um, is whether you have formal employment or not. So in South Africa, if you were, um, say, a teacher in a rural area, you would not only be very, very likely to have a bank account, but you're also probably likely to have some sort of provident fund, um, some sort of life insurance. And plus, teachers in the rural areas are, are, are very targeted by insurance companies. So you you probably have all sorts of retirement annuities that you have no idea what they are, but you you know they you have them, um, and so automatically having a job and a regular job increases your likelihood of interacting with the formal sector. In Bangladesh and India, there was a lot less formal job and salaried job engagement, and so you saw a, a, a bit less formal and in, formal instruments in their portfolios yeah in in india and bangladesh what you do see more of is microfinance mm -hmm. um, especially in rural areas so that was a little bit of a difference but you know overall the differences between rural and urban um were not so great as the commonalities and i think that there's one thing that really struck me and was surprising um, by this is as an economist i think for you know decades we've had this idea that the formal sector will come forth and develop and will squeeze out the informal 
But we didn't really find that. We found, in fact, that all these informal things were happening alongside the formal. And the formal comes in just as another instrument in a broad portfolio. And so it really helped us rethink uh, sort of what we're doing when we're creating microfinance. It's not kind of the new thing that then you gravitate toward. It's just another option that you maintain um, alongside your money guard and your deposit collector um, and all those other options. Let's talk uh, briefly about the price of financial services. Daryl, you mentioned earlier that um, uh, one of the conclusions is that price matters, that the interest rates that are being charged are um, uh, not completely off the page, but they are quite a lot higher. But the, the, the judgments that people make about the choice of instruments and so on don't seem to be as dependent on price as on other things, such as reliability and transparency and relevance to the particular uh, purpose that they want to use the instrument for. Is that, is that the correct conclusion, that, pri- that, that these choices are not very price dependent, not very dependent on interest rates? Well, I think something that you have to really look at very carefully. I mean, it, what I found um, is, you know, as a, as a portfolio manager, you would look at the return on an investment, and that would be key. You'd look at, you know, the cost of borrowing money and the, the, the return on investment, and both of those figures would be in percentages. And in many ways, when you think about the portfolios of the poor, you really need to think of, you know, the levels, like a, the fees. And so in, rather than thinking of um, the cost of a loan in terms of an interest rate, think of it rather in terms of a fee. Because many of these, um, many of the loans that, that, um, households would take, especially in the South African sample, and most of uh, a lot of the analysis that we did on price uh, was done on money lender loans in South Africa. A lot of these loans would be very, very short term. They'd be less than a month. Yet the price on them was quoted at 30% per month, which sounds astronomical when you when you take that into an APR. But if you think about it, you, you, they're only if you were only borrowing, say, $20, then 30% of $20 that you're going to pay back in, you know, 10 days time isn't really that much within the whole portfolio of cash flows that you're going to be carrying that month. So if you think of it rather as a fee than as an interest rate, it slowly starts to make a bit more sense. Um, also, if you if you think of what that cash flow bridging loan might be. I mean, you're only going to be taking that loan for 10 days. What you're really trying to do is tide you over until some other money comes in. Well, you're not going to want to sort of keep it around and, and, and need to pay interest on it over months and months and take your time and paying them back. You want to pay it back very quickly because what if a situation like that happens again and you need to go back and, and borrow money for a second time? You want to sort of clear up that debt so that you're free to be able to borrow again. So it's really important to look at a lot of the different elements, um, the context in which in which you're borrowing, for how long you're borrowing, and the size of the loan. We're not talking about a big capital loan here that people would take six months or a year to pay back. When we're talking about this 30% per month, oftentimes we're talking about a very short-term loan, relatively small sizes, and a cash flow type bridging loan. Um, so 
we have to be very careful in our own minds that we're comparing apples to apples. Um, that that 30% per month is not compared to, you know, our mortgage rates right. um, in, our, in our own minds. So that's a way of explaining why it is that what look to us like astronomical interest rates are perhaps not so challenging if people are borrowing the money and it's a small amount of money and uh, for a small period of time. Uh, but is it right, nonetheless, that price is not the, is not the main determinant of of people's choices? I think there's also, uh, I mean, what we found is that convenience right. and reliability matters a great deal as well. So knowing that you can walk across the street and borrow from the moneylender, and you've got a very, very high probability that he's going to give you that money that you need right then and there, because somebody's waiting to take that money to go and help pay for a funeral that you've said that you're going to contribute to, that matters a great deal. Right. And uh, that matters certainly equally as much as, as price, if not more. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So we've established that, or you've established that, um, people who are living on $2 a, a day are much more prolific users of financial services than uh, you might have imagined. And that, that seems to be true across uh, a number of countries. It seems to be true in um, rural areas and urban areas. Let's look at what that means for um, people who are interested in the delivery of financial services, whether that's private sector uh, firms who might be interested in scaling up uh, the delivery of financial services or policymakers and so on. I mean, what I wasn't clear on from reading the book is whether you think there's unmet demand. Do we, does your approach enable us to say that there are particular types of services that people don't currently have access to but would like to have? And we, we know that they, that they make a lot of use of the services they do have, but that doesn't, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that, uh, that there is room for more services to be available to them. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Um, and sometimes we don't know what people really want until a new product comes along and then we see whether it you know, is popular or not. One of the things we see is there's a lot of savings. And this is surprising to lots of people that poor households can save so much. They can save, they do save, they want to save. But a lot of it is, is short term. You know, it's maybe to bridge something that's going to come up in four months or you know, within a year. Very little... There are very few ways to save longer term, except perhaps you know through investing in your house. And one of the things we saw in Bangladesh over the last few years is the introduction by Grameen Bank of a new long-term saving product. It's either a five-year or ten-year term. It's been extremely popular. Most of the households we got to know have no access to anything like that, and it just sort of underscores a big gap in financial needs. I think the second thing is that while there are lots of devices that people have, they aren't always reliable, and you don't always know it, that you're going to be able to get the money when you need it um, and the amounts you need it. And so, you know, Daryl's got lots of stories about savings clubs falling apart, about theft, robbery. Um, um, but the bigger issues are that, you know, we do see people having to skip meals, you know, at least one meal a day when they can't get their um, finances together. And also some really um, tragic stories about people, uh, you know, really suffering in terms of their health when they can't get 
you know, loans to buy medicines or go to a doctor, um, sometimes leading you know, to, to death, actually. And so while there's a lot of activity, we do see lots of gaps as well. But is the the people who are having to skip a meal or unable to get healthcare that they need at the time they needed? You're implicitly uh, attributing that to a, a failure of the provision of financial services, rather than the fact that these people are just too poor. Well, it's interesting. Um, and it's a it's a great question, and this is one of the big um, questions for you know donors in the private sector. When we look at these cases of the health problems, um, they look like problems that are being fixed elsewhere by simple insurance mechanisms. Um, so that definitely does seem like a gap um, in terms of financial services. The others where people are skipping meals, um, these are during you know low seasons where they're actually doing quite well in the higher seasons. Um, and so again, you know, it goes back to something you said in the beginning. If, if people earned a dollar a day or two dollars a day every day, their lives would look very different. And, you know, these gaps are happening um, because they don't. And income is irregular and needs are irregular. So we, it wasn't so much poverty itself as these ups and downs that households are having um, difficulty dealing with. You know, you can exactly, you can, you can see exactly in these portfolios where the, you know, what the problems are. You know, because we not only tracked what, how, the, how, people manage their money and what types of financial instruments they had and, you know, the ebbs and flows in their portfolios. We also tracked what happened to them in terms of unexpected events and expected events. So we could see the risk that they were facing at the same time that we saw how they used their portfolio to try to manage those risks. And when unexpected things happen, there isn't a lot of untied savings. So we describe these savings clubs that are incredible generators of savings towards a particular event or a particular time. But when something unexpected happens, oftentimes there is nothing in that portfolio that would allow a household to meet that financial demand except for a very high-priced loan that they might not be able to service or to sell an asset that they really needed. Um, you can directly see how the portfolio is failing in those unexpected ways. So I think oftentimes uh, you, you may have an impression when you hear how wonderfully uh, or, or, you know, how innovative poor people are about managing their money that, you know, well, gosh, well, perhaps this is, you know, this is all that they need and, you know, who are we to interfere and perhaps this is all working great. But you can see very clearly that there are gaps that need to be filled in some other ways that informal services have not sort of necessarily innovated. To, to, to come up with some sort of solution and that that is the place that formal services need to target. Have you identified the reasons why, in, I mean, if there are these needs that um, uh, for the services that people do use in formal uh, arrangements have proven uh, very effective, they're widely used, that's covering 70% or thereabouts of lots of people's uh, current use of financial services. There must presumably be reasons why informal arrangements haven't evolved to cover the kinds of services that you're talking about, which are, are still absent, either um, either in terms of the coverage, this, for example, long-term savings instruments, mm -hmm. or 
the characteristics that you think you uh, that they need to have. Um, Jonathan, you talked earlier about the need for more reliable, more transparent uh, services. Why why haven't informal arrangements evolved over uh, over the years to to fill that those needs? And, and why would formal arrangements work if informal arrangements haven't uh, filled those gaps? Yeah, it's an important question. I, I think when we look at both of those examples that you raised, the long-term savings and you know, thinking about, say, risk and insurance, those are both areas that involve a lot of trust. I mean, both of those um, institutions in you know, Europe and the United States, elsewhere, uh, you know, those, are institu- those are contracts and products that you know, depend on your believing in you know, the viability and trustworthiness of the financial institution you're engaging with. And that's exactly where the informal sector breaks down most often. You can maintain trust and reliability for you know, a stretch, but when you're thinking about five years out, ten years out, um, or if you're thinking about you know, needs like a health problem or a, um, you know, crop loss, which are acute and where you're really going to have to rely on people to a great extent, I think the informal sector... Um, has a very much harder time delivering, and that's exactly what you know the formal sector is all about. What financial intermediation is extremely good at doing: hedging risk and creating long-term services. There's a lot of wind in the sails of the microfinance movement at the moment. Um, it's it's a pet subject for lots, particularly of private givers, who are attracted by the idea that. Um, enabling people to borrow money so they can set up a small business and earn an income themselves is a better way of helping people, better way of supporting people because you're, you know, the, you have the sense that it's temporary, that you're giving people a hand up and that will put them on their own two feet. Uh, but uh, what's it? what I found interesting in, in your discussion about the way that the poor use financial services is that very little of it is about using financial services um, uh, in the form of microcredit to support businesses. It's much more about smoothing income, smoothing consumption, managing insurance, managing risk. There seems to be a uh, kind of discontinuity between the rhetoric around microfinance and actually the the way that the poor are actually using financial services and the kinds of financial services that they continue to need. Yeah, I think that you know the book really lays out a vision or begins to lay out a vision um, that could help take microfinance forward to another level where we're really thinking about broad financial provision. I think microcredit for small business, right, the original vision that you describe, is a very powerful vision. And we do see, especially in India and Bangladesh, many households taking advantage of microcredit um, to fund their businesses. But it's not the one thing they want. It's not necessarily you know, the most important thing they want. And one of the things that's striking when um, we have a chapter where Stuart Rutherford goes back to Bangladesh and does an additional set of financial diaries on a group of households that are Grameen Bank customers. Grameen Bank, of course, is the great pioneering microcredit institution, the Nobel Prize winner. And he finds that less than half of the households are borrowing mainly for running small businesses. Instead, they're you know, paying for health needs and they're making sure their kids are in school and they're dealing with consumption needs. And the, health and the business is, is there, but it's not necessarily the big thing that they're borrowing for. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of 
kind of the broader picture that, that we're seeing. Households are running complicated lives and they're doing it in complicated environments. And so what we're trying to argue is that for microcredit to move forward, uh, sort of opening up to thinking about loans for a broad range of purposes are going to not only fit better with what households want to do, but fit better with what households are already doing with the loans they're taking. Right. I mean, I have absolutely no problem at all in making the case that giving people access to financial services to enable them to uh, to eat more than one meal a day or not having to skip uh, health care that they need is, a, is an important function. But it is it it will rub up against a lot of this uh, this kind of ideology, won't it? That uh, because that's going to be a continuing need that that kind of financial. You, you, it doesn't uh, seem likely to catalyze and spark the economic growth and uh, jobs and prosperity that that microfinance has been promising hitherto, and which for which the evidence is grievously um, lacking. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. It's really calling for a change in in rhetoric and really calling for focusing on what households are doing rather than, um, you know, the kind of messages that sell well in New York or London or, or Paris. And, you know, we're arguing that if you spend time with households in Bangladesh or India or South Africa or places like that, um, you know, you'll really start to see a, a very different story that could lead to a different kind of rhetoric. But just, just to clarify, you know, the microfinance vision has not been one where it's been one where donors get in and give money and get out. But from the customer's perspective, from the household's perspective, the idea always has been that you would have a you know, sustainable financial institution that would be with them you know, over the generations. And so the idea was never that the microcredit organization would only be there for a temporary time. Um, and so in that sense, you know, the kind of continuities that would be necessary as one expands lending for you know, consumption needs, et cetera, is actually um, quite similar to you know, what we're seeing today. It's just opening up and recognizing that people are doing more complicated things mm. with the money that they have. I mean, and just to in, in enhance upon that, I, I, I did a, uh, a bit of financial diaries on small businesses in South Africa earlier this year using the financial diaries um, again. And it, when you find that, when you really go into how small businesses are run, we have, again, this, this, this idea that um, they need these big capital loans to expand their business. And because they are going to expand their business, then they're going to make more money, they're going to hire more people, and then, you know, you start to see implications for economic growth. And what we fail to sometimes recognize is that oftentimes it's, it's, uh, businesses need cash flow loans. They need loans just to manage to still stay in business so that they can keep an income that keeps food on the table and that keeps the school fees paid. And sometimes sustaining a business is just as important as growing it. And in that way, um, what Jonathan's just said about it, you know, having a financial institution that will not only be with you through a period of time, but also will serve you in different ways during different times of that business's growth and, and life. Um, is really a much broader way of thinking than than the sort of very traditional way of thinking of microfinance, where you know uh, businesses would get a, you know a, a big loan for six months and then and then pay it back over that time. Yeah, there's another I, I think point um, to to add to what Daryl's saying, which sort of goes in the other direction, which is that you know 
Daryl and Orlando Ruthman and Stuart Rutherford got to know lots of households living on under $2 a day. Many of them have a business on the side, but some of them don't. You know, they don't, they may work for someone, they may be a maid, they may be a rickshaw driver working for somebody. They don't have a small business, they don't want a small business, but they do need financial services and they do need small loans. And so the vision of small loans for small businesses as sort of the exclusive vision of financial access for poor households really doesn't fit with what, you know, billions of very poor households need and are looking for. And I think there's a I'm not going to say there's a tremendous business opportunity um, because I'm not a financial advisor in that way, but there's certainly a, a big market um, there that goes well, that you can imagine once you get out of the um, microcredit box that has served us well for 25 years and start to think about broader financial services. In some ways, that message is summed up by your phrase about a triple whammy, that the poor face this this. Um, triplet of having low incomes that's by definition that's what that's what makes them poor they also have unpredictable and volatile incomes they're not all living on a on a dollar a day or two dollars a day coming in each and every day but this is coming in in bunches and waves and they have weak financial institutions so that's the those are the the three legs of the triple whammy and but as a result they need financial institutions, formal and informal mechanisms, if anything, even more than people who have higher incomes and don't face that triple whammy. And I, I thought that was a very powerful and compelling message and, and for me an unexpected message of, of this research. Yeah, we really felt that um, that most importantly, the financial services that the poor have don't necessarily play well to the type of cash flows that they face and the type of risks that they face. Um, they don't necessarily tie in well to the unexpected events that will come along. They don't necessarily tie in well to the type of aspirations that they have to take advantage of opportunities and to just simply live their lives um, and fulfill traditions and fulfill you know, family obligations and what have you. So in that sense, in that sense, the financial services that, that they do have really don't, don't match what they are facing in their everyday lives. Yeah, I think, uh, and another part of it, I mean, is the book very much focuses on finance. And as Daryl's been describing, finance is this really very powerful way to understand the economic lives and social lives of poor households. And yet, ultimately, the book is about reimagining poverty and understanding poverty as it's lived day to day and week to week in some of the poorer parts of the world. And there, the triple whammy is really about saying, let's step back from kind of the rhetoric of poverty, the dollar a day or two dollar a day measures, and unpack that a bit and see both, you know, truer uh, you know, descriptions of what it is to be poor and also open up to some new solutions. And some of them, I think some of the more practical ones, um, are in the financial realm. I've been talking to Daryl Collins and Jonathan Mordock, who together with Stuart Rutherford and Orlando Ruthven are the authors of Portfolios of the Poor, How the World's Poor Live on $2 a Day, which is published by Princeton University Press. Daryl and Jonathan, thank you both very much for coming on Development Drums. Thanks. Thanks, for, thanks very much, Owen. And thanks to everyone listening to Development Drums. Thanks for your interest in development and for downloading the podcast.
And you can find links to the book and the website on, on developmentdrums.org. And you can find us on the Development Drums group on Facebook. Don't give me